I, I don't know the last time you thought about what it was like to be in elementary school. Do you guys think about that every now and then? Do you ever just think back to the good old days about when you were in like third grade and like the biggest thing you had to worry about was if you were going to get picked on a team or something like that at recess, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody else other than me think about elementary school occasionally? Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I guess kind of I know why because I was looking for like an illustration to use right here. So I was thinking about elementary school today and uh, definitely a lot of good times, but also some pretty brutal moments. If you, you know, just some brutal things like I think that I've got some scars that I need to deal with that came from recess. You know what I mean? Like some things that I just need, maybe need to talk through with someone, especially when it comes to recess and it came to picking teams. You know, you like, you line up and you're about to play dodgeball or football or basketball and then like the two best kids out there, they're they're the captains and then they're like, okay, let's pick teams. And of course, you're only picked if you're like the popular person or the athletic person. And so if you were like me when you were a kid, you were always like the last two or three to get picked every single day for your whole life, it seemed, whenever you're like 10, 9 and 10 years old, just brutal, just humiliating. Like you just look, just not, not fun, you know. But I mean, it makes sense because who do you want on your team? If you're going to compete, you want the people who are going to win. Like you want the people that are good at what you're going to play. You want the strong people, the tall people, the fast people. This is what you want. You don't want to have a team full of underdogs. You want to have a team that looks like it's going to win. You want this. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah? So, something that's very striking about the stories in the Bible is that many of the people that God chooses to use, these people wouldn't have been picked first on the playground at recess. These people are oftentimes weak and scrawny, and you just you wouldn't expect for God to choose them to do great things. But God makes a point in Scripture to choose people like this. You just start from Genesis 1-1 and you read through, it happens over and over and over again where God chooses people to, you know, to carry out His plan and His will who you just wouldn't expect. It's, it's the weak ones, it's the small ones, it's, it's the underdogs. But God is doing this over and over to show His people, to show us that it's not about our strength, it's not about what we have to offer. It's all about God and His strength. So we're in Judges chapter 7, and this is finishing the life of Gideon. So go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 7. And you see this in the life of Gideon, right? We talked about, you know, last time there was the call of Gideon, and he's admitting, like, I'm the weakest of the people of the weakest clan. You can't possibly be choosing me, God. I can't possibly go. I'm not this mighty man of valor that you're calling on. It's not me. But God chooses this man, and he says, you're going to be the one to go and lead Israel out of oppression from the Midianites. It's going to be you. And it is such a point of emphasis in Scripture that we need to understand this. We've got to understand that it's not about us and our strength and what we have to offer, but it's all about God and His strength and what He's going to do in His might and in His power. He can take the weakest vessels there are and He can use them to accomplish His good purposes. So Gideon is, is the underdog. Gideon is this guy that you wouldn't have picked to be on your team at recess. You just wouldn't have done it. But God chose him. And then God chooses him and he goes and he leads an army. And the army is one full of underdogs. We're going to see it's just it's, it's a small army of 300 men. And you would never expect these guys to go and win this battle. But they did. But again, it's not a reflection of their strength. It's a reflection of God and his power and his might and his strength. So you need to realize that you, as a child of God, as a Christian, you are most useful to God when you stop being confident in yourself and you start relying completely on Him. That's when you are most useful to God. That's when He says, I am going to use you because you know it's not about yourself, your strength, your confidence. It's about your confidence in me. That's what God is saying. It's about you depending completely on him for everything. We see this in the life of Gideon. 
So we're going to read a a few verses here in in chapter 7, just to let you know, we're covering a lot of verses, so probably, I'm probably not going to read all the way through 7, 1 through 8, 32, but we're going to kind of pick up and and read some, and I'll summarize it as we go, but chapter 7, verse 1, it says, then Jerubel, that is Gideon, that's his nickname, um, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So that means there were 32,000. 22,000 left because they were afraid. And he's left with 10,000 people, 10,000 men. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So like I said, you need to realize that you are most useful to God when you stop being confident in yourself and you start relying completely on Him. Here's point number one. I want you to write this down this way. I want you to see your weakness as opportunity to rely on God's strength. You need to see your moments of weakness, the weakness that you have, it's an opportunity for you to rely on the strength of God. Alright, so like I said, when we met Gideon in chapter 6, he was this frightened man, this weak man. He admitted his weakness. Essentially, he's telling God, this is a mistake. I'm not going to be the one to lead. I'm weak. I'm the weakest of all the clans. It's not going to be me. And God is patient with him in his doubt, and he ends up tolerating the sign of the fleece. You know, Gideon, he says, I need, I need assurance. I need you to reassure me in my doubt. And God is patient with him, and he gives him the sign of the fleece. It was wet, and then it wasn't, or whichever order it was. I can't remember right now, but you remember that. And at the end of chapter 6, Gideon is getting ready to gather the troops and to fight. So God has assured him, and he has said, yes, uh, it's really me, it's really God, and I will deliver them over to you. This is going to happen. So he says, okay, like, let's go. The beginning of chapter 7 comes, and God speaks to Gideon, and this is when he says, hey, your army is too big. Your army is too big. Because if they win, or, or I should say when they win the battle, he knows that Israel would say, hey, we won because we're strong. That's why we won the battle, because we're awesome. Because we're strong, because it's our army, that's why we won the battle. And God says, no, no, I can't have that. We're not going to do that. So I'm going to slim your army down to where it is completely undeniable that God is the one who brought the victory and not Israel. So he does. He slims down the army. He says, whoever's scared can leave. It leaves 10,000 people. He says, whoever drinks water like a dog will stay and fight. And that's 300. And there's something quick about this whole drinking water like a dog thing. Some people, some commentators will say that this was God's way of finding like the, the strategic, like the smart guys, cause, and they'll say that, oh yeah, people who like went down and did the water like a dog, like how they, they got the water in their, their hands and they lapped it up and they were looking around like waiting for the enemy, and apparently the guys who knelt down just knelt down and like shoved their faces in the water and they were exposed. Like People say all this, but I'm just being honest, like there's nothing in the text that can get us there. And really like, if, 
if God was saying, I'm going to choose the best of you, that would defeat the whole purpose of what he's trying to do. Because he's trying to say, you're going to win with a small, scrawny little army. So if this was God's way of saying, I'm going to get the best, then they could walk away saying, we're the best and we won because we're the best. But see, that's not what God is doing. He's slimming this army down, like I said, to make it completely undeniable that God gave them the victory. So there's no strategic purpose. We don't know other than that this was God's way of picking these 300 men to lead them out to battle. He's going to go fight this battle with 300 men, and he's going to win. All right, but you need to see the significance of the reason that God gave for making the army smaller. I want you to understand this. He knows, like I said, he, he says it. Yeah, if this happens, if I let 32,000 of these men go fight and win, they're going to boast. And he says, they're going to boast over me, over God. They're going to assert themselves over God. They're going to put their glory over God's glory and say, this was because of us, not because of God, not because of us, because we're awesome. And of course, God could not have that happen. So throughout the book of Judges, God is constantly, constantly proving to Israel that he is the sovereign God ruling and reigning over all things. We've seen it chapter after chapter after chapter. God is proving to them, hey, God has the power. God is in control. God is ruling. God is reigning. Not Israel. Not these people, not these faithless people. God is sovereign. God is reigning. He wants Israel to see that they are nothing without him. They have nothing without him. They have no hope without him. They have no strength without him. They have no victory without him. So over and over and over again, this is what God is showing them. Hey, focus on me. Like, get rid of your idols. Focus on me. It's all about me. It's all about my glory. It's all about him and, and his sovereignty. God is the reason for their success. He's also the reason for their pain and for their oppression. Because we see that it's God who is handing them over into the hands of their enemy when they disobey. He's behind it all. He's sovereign over everything. It's all about him and his actions and what he's doing. He is the reason for their very lives. He's the reason why they can breathe. In fact, he's the only reason why you can breathe. If you're taking a breath right now, God gave it to you. You understand? It's all about him. It's all about his sovereignty, his rule, and his reign. And he's like, Israel, you need to see this. You need to understand this. It's about me, not about you. So here's another opportunity for God to show Israel that he is sovereign. That he is ruling, he is reigning, and he alone is responsible for their success. And then in verse 9, we have this interesting little episode, again, where God lovingly reassures Gideon. I didn't read that, but here's what happens. He tells Gideon, hey, if you're afraid to go down and fight, then here's what you need to do. You need to go down. It's kind of funny. He says, you're afraid to go down. Here's what you need to do. You need to go down. You need to take your servant and go down. You need to listen to what the enemy is saying. And I will prove to you when you're listening to them that I'm going to give them into your hands. So he goes down the mountain. He goes and he finds the Midianites and he's listening. He's spying on the enemy. In the Bible, God makes it very clear that their numbers are overwhelming. Just massive army. It says that they're, uh, they were like locusts in abundance. Like locusts, millions of these things fly around and eat up plants. It's crazy. There's millions of them. And then he says they had camels without number. Camels, at this point in history and in this place, were a big deal when it came to military. A lot of camels meant a lot of power. And so he says their camels were without number, as many as the sand on the seashore. So we can just say that if they had that many camels, then they had even more people. They had even more men in their army. And Gideon is here with his servant, doing what God said, listening to what they're going to say. We can be assured that what God is doing is he's promising that he will win this battle against who knows how many thousands of people and how many thousands of camels. He's going to win this battle with just 300 men. So Gideon, he hears them talking about a dream that one of the soldiers had. This is just so funny to me. He says, hey, I had a dream. Uh, a cake of barley bread 
tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. And the other soldier goes, this is no other than the sword of Gideon. How does, like, it's, a, it's bread. Bread is rolling down and knocking over tents. And he's like, it's Gideon, it's his sword, we're going to die. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. This is soldiers of Midian, and they're talking about this. And this guy is admitting right here, we're dead. God is going to give us into his hand. And he doesn't know that Gideon is listening to what he's saying. But again, this is God's way of giving Gideon assurance that his word is true. Or so when it says, if you are afraid, when God says, if you're afraid, it's almost like we should go, okay, it's a no-brainer. It's Gideon. Yeah, he's afraid. <laughs> he's been afraid this whole time. So he's going to go down, and he's going to, God is going to be faithful and, and show him once again that he is going to win this battle. Right, so Gideon, he hears this, and the Bible says he worships immediately. He hears this reassurance, he hears the promise, and he goes, okay, I believe. I believe. I'm trusting you, God. And he worships God because of what he did. And he goes back to camp, and he says, okay, arise. Get ready. Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. You see how he phrases that? Not he's going to give. He says, it's done. God has given the host of Midian into your hand. He's confident that God is going to keep his word. He's confident this is going to happen. He's confident in the word of God. So here's the battle plan. He takes these 300 men and says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to divide you into three groups of 100. So that's 100 people here, 100 people here, 100 people here. He spreads them out. And he gives them these pretty sick weapons. Um, a trumpet jars, empty jars, and torches. And he puts the torches in the jars. And he's like, okay, we're going to go fight. He spreads these guys out, surrounds Midian, and it says that they surround Midian at the beginning of the middle watch. This is, this is cool. That's around 3 o'clock in the morning when the watch was about to change. So the people who've been staying up on guard are getting really tired they're about to go to sleep, and the people who have been asleep are waking up. So you've got a bunch of sleepy people who are changing the guard, you know, like saying, okay, it's our turn to defend, it's your turn to sleep. So they're tired. You know the feeling like when you wake up and you're tired and you're just confused? Like you're literally laying in your bed and you're like, whoa, like what's going on? I'm talking about, like I'm just picturing like that's what all these guys are doing. They're like waking up and going to bed and it's just sleepy, and Gideon has surrounded them with his army. And he says, okay, guys, when I blow my trumpet, you're all going to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And whenever they do that, they're all going to then blow their trumpets. They're going to break the jars and they're going to light the torches. That's the battle plan. So Gideon, he blows his trumpet. Everyone shouts. They say, uh, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They smash the jars. They light the torches. And here's what the Bible says happened. All the army ran. They're tired. They're confused. They hear all the shouting. They hear all the trumpets. They're freaking out. They can't really see anybody except for these torches. They cried aloud and fled. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So you know what that means? They all killed each other. Gideon's army didn't do anything other than break jars, blow trumpets, and yell, and light torches. And they just killed each other. The confusion, the mass chaos that God sent. That's how they won this battle. So some of the surviving soldiers of Midian, they run away. And Gideon, he, this is when he calls back on all the soldiers who, who went away. He says, okay, the 300 people that, that God gave me, we just won. We didn't do anything other than just do this thing with the, the jars and the trumpets. But we won the battle. Now he calls everybody else that went back to the tents. And he says, let's go. Let's pursue those that have survived. And we're going to catch the princes. We're going to catch the kings. And, and we're going to end this once and for all. So, of course, there is something extremely valuable here in the story that every Christian needs to learn. God's strength is made perfect 
in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Very familiar passages. It says this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Gideon was a weak man down to this weak 300-man army against the biggest powerhouse of an army there was. And God says, yeah, I'm going to use you in your weakness to show you exactly how strong I am. To prove to us, to prove to Israel that it's about God's strength. This is an opportunity for Gideon and for Israel to rely on the strength of God, not themselves. And when Paul writes this, he's saying the same thing. In your weakness, you can be strong, not because of your strength, but because of God's strength, and he gives it to you. So when you are weak, you need to realize that this is an opportunity for you to trust God. To say, it's not about my strength, I'm just going to rely on you. I'm going to depend on you, God, and, and you are going to give me strength to keep going. Your confidence should never be in yourself. If you're a Christian, your confidence should never be in yourself. Confidence in yourself can actually be a negative thing for a Christian. It's a negative thing in the eyes of God, which, of course, is completely contrary to, the, to what the world says. What does the world say? Be confident in yourself. Be confident in yourself. Be, have confidence. You, you are awesome. Have confidence in it. And God says, no, you, your confidence needs to be in me. Your confidence, your strength needs to be in God. So whatever confidence you have needs to be found in God. Not in you. Not in anything or anyone else. It needs to be in God. And sometimes God, probably most of the time, God uses weakness to teach his children this lesson. When you are weak, this is God saying, hey, rely on me. This is an opportunity for you to understand that it's all about you relying and depending on God, not yourself. He used the weak and lowly army of Gideon to teach Israel of his strength. He used the weakness and the pain of Paul, the apostle Paul, to teach him to rely on God. And when you are weak, Again, you need to recognize that that is an opportunity to rely on the strength and power of God. But let's get a little bit more specific. What weakness are we talking about? What are moments of weakness? I just listed a bunch here. Just the moments where you feel like you can't go forward anymore. You know what I'm talking about. Where there comes a day where you're just, you're tired, you're exhausted. And you just feel weak, and you just think, I don't know how I can do this anymore. I've got so many responsibilities. I've got so much to do. I've got so much to study, so much work to do. How can I do this? How can I go anymore? Well, in your weakness in that moment, it's an opportunity for you to rely on the strength of God. To put your trust in God where it should be and not in yourself, not relying on yourself and your own strength. Maybe you just feel like life is beating you down and you quite literally don't feel like you have the strength to continue. It's at that moment where you can be the most useful to God. Because you're saying, God, I need your strength. It's not about me. It's about you and your strength. God, help me to be strong because you are strong. Maybe you feel depressed, lonely, sorrowful. Maybe you're at the point where you just don't want to do anything. Maybe, maybe it took everything you had to leave your house to come to the bridge tonight. The weakness that you're experiencing, the weakness that you're feeling, maybe God is giving you that weakness. He's allowing you to go through it to teach you to rely on Him, to rely on His power, His strength, His life. Maybe it's cancer diagnosis. Maybe someone that you are close to passed away. Maybe you've hit a low point with your relationships 
Maybe you're discouraged because you've fallen into temptation several times recently to a sin that you thought you had gotten over, but all of a sudden it's back and you're discouraged and you feel weak and helpless. Maybe you're discouraged because you've been trying to live a godly life and you're just not doing well. Maybe you're down because you're sharing the gospel with people at work or people in your classes and no one is listening and now they're making fun of you because you're that weird Christian. Anything like this. Any, any moment where you just feel weak. You need to rely on the strength of God. So in your moment of weakness, in, in this weakness, you have a choice to make. Christians have a choice to make at this point. You can wallow in self-pity. You can just, oh, this is so bad. This is so bad. God, why are you doing this? What's going on? And, and just feel sorry for yourself. Or you can realize that this is the perfect time to become completely reliant upon God and his strength. You need to remember that God's grace is sufficient for you and his power is made perfect in what? In your weakness. That's how Paul can say he's content. You know what it feels like to, to be content? Like after you eat like a great meal and like your favorite show is on and you're like, ah, oh, everything is great right now. I'm talking about like that content feeling. You just, you know what I'm talking about when you feel so content? Paul says, I'm content with insults, weakness, hardships, persecution, and calamities. How, Paul? How can you feel content through those things? Because God said that his power is made perfect in my weakness. Because God's grace is sufficient for you at all times. Paul can be content in these things, and, and you can be content in your weaknesses, because you, he, Paul knows that he will be depending on the strength of God through them. And that God's strength, God's power will be sustaining him through his weaknesses. So your weakness, whatever it may be, whatever you're going through, whatever the situation is, the weakness that you're experiencing can actually be an advantage if you realize that you need to rely on God and his strength instead of yourself. That's what Gideon did. You see, Gideon's problem throughout most of his life was that he was looking at himself too much. Right? Whenever God shows up and he says, oh, mighty man of valor, he, he's not paying attention to God and what's going on out here. He's saying, it can't be me. It can't be me. Have you, have you met me? Have you seen me? I'm weak. I live in the weakest clan. It's not me. His attention was way, way too much on himself. But finally, Gideon stops looking at himself, and he starts directing his gaze to God and the power and the strength of God. You see, when he only looked at himself, he, all he saw was weakness and fear. But when he turns and he looks at God, he sees power. And he is able to trust God in his strength, in his power, to move on and to find victory in these battles. Or so look, if you've been having a hard time lately, if you're like, yeah, Pastor Jacob, that's like, I've, I've just been feeling weak. I've just been feeling weak lately. I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I been trying to live life all on my own? Or have I been relying on the strength of God to keep going? God is using your weakness to show you that you need to trust Him. That you need to depend on Him completely. Stop looking to yourself for confidence. Stop depending on your own strength. You guys ever heard of ministry burnout have you heard of people talking about this like people just get burned out in ministry so essentially it's, it's this thing it's always been around but it's, it's, it's especially popular right now with people in ministry they'll, they'll just they'll quit ministry because they'll say i'm burned out 
I'm too tired. I can't do this anymore. I mean, I've talked to people who say, oh, they'll say, I'm just, I just realized that I, wasn't, I, was, I couldn't do it. I wasn't strong enough. I'm not gifted enough. I just can't keep going. I'm burned out. I can't do it anymore. The pressure was too much. I can't take the criticism. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. But you know what's missing from a lot of people? Not all of these people, but from a lot of these people who say they're going through burnout? Consistent time in God's word. That's, that's what's missing oftentimes. Consistent time with God and his word and in prayer. These people are trying to do ministry and they're trying to go through life and do all these things and they're not relying on God. They're relying on themselves. They're trying to conjure up any strength they can possibly find from themselves. And it's ironic because they're leaving and they're quitting. And the reason they're quitting, they're saying, I'm, I can't do it, I'm weak. It's like, do you not understand that that's the point? Yeah, you are weak. This is when you need to say, God, I'm weak, but I'm just, I need to rely on you and your power and your strength and, and you. But they don't see it. They don't get it. And look, this doesn't just apply to ministry. Just use it as an example. This applies to everyone. No matter what your profession is, no matter what you're studying, no matter what you're doing in life, are you relying on yourself are you only trying to just do things all by yourself? Oh, I'm confident in myself. I can do it all by myself. I don't need help. Uh, is that you? Or are you realizing that God's power is made perfect in your weakness? Look, don't, don't be arrogant. Don't try to go through life doing everything on your own. You can't. But that's good news. You understand? That's good. That's good news because you get to rely on the strength of God. God Almighty, Yahweh God, says, hey, if you will just depend upon me, I'll give you my strength. I'll strengthen you. That's how you can keep going, through the strength of God, not your own. You are most useful to God when you are completely dependent upon him. He uses people in their weakness. You see, he refused to use the great big army. He said, I'm not even going to use that. So if you're puffed up on yourself, you think you can do it all on your own, and you've got this arrogant confidence, and you're not depending on God, that's not what God wants to use, you understand? You're most useful to God when you are most dependent upon him. So chapter 7, it, it ends on a high note for Gideon. Chapter 7 is like, whoa, yes, Gideon, this is what I'm talking about. You are relying on God now. Your, your gaze is fixed on him. Like, this is great. Good job. But in chapter 8, something starts to change. A few weird things happen. Ephraim gets upset at Gideon for not calling them for help before the battle started. So the battle started, they're chasing after the Midianites, and then that's when Gideon says, hey, Ephraim, come help. And they help, they chase down, they catch the princes of Midian. Um, they have weird names, Zeba and Zalmunna. We'll go with that. And uh, they capture these guys, and, and, and they kill them. But they're like, you should have called us first. You, you shouldn't have like, waited until the last minute to call us. They're mad at Gideon, and Gideon pretty much just says, hey, whoa, like, you understand that what you accomplished is way better than what I, like, your victory is way better than mine. He calms them down, and they're not mad anymore because he was smart, and he said this thing. Just a kind of a weird episode here. So they're relaxed, and then Gideon and his army are, are still pursuing them. I'm sorry, these other people, what are their names? Did I write them down? Not, not Zeba and Zalmanna, the other people. Anyways, now Gideon is chasing after the, the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmanna. And so he in his army, they stop at these cities called Succoth and Penuel, and he asks these cities for bread. He's like, hey, my, my guys have been chasing these kings for a long time. We're tired. We haven't stopped. Can you please give us bread? And both of these cities refuse. Like, no, we're not giving you bread. Why should we do that? They're sarcastic. Do you already have the hands? Do you already have them with you? Why should we give you bread if you don't have them yet? And so Gideon responds really harshly. Because what they're doing, they're not just rejecting Gideon, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting God and his will and, and him. 
So Gideon responds harshly, and he says, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars, and I will break down this tower. And then he leaves. He's chasing after the kings. We'll call them Z and Z. So they're at this place called Karker, and the Bible says that these kings, they felt secure. They felt safe. They felt good where they were. They didn't know that Gideon was right around the corner. 15,000 men were left. Okay. A bunch of people already died. And there's still 15,000 left. And Gideon still only has 300. And whoever else decided to come with him. So maybe a little more than 300 at this point. 120,000 of them died. So we know at least 120,000, 130, 140,000 were were there. But 120,000 of these men in this army slaughtered each other. And that's how they won that battle. So Gideon, they ride, they go up to this place, Karkar, and they, they capture the kings. And then Gideon goes back to the cities that, that rejected him with Z and Z. And he uh, goes to fulfill his promises. He, he actually does flail their flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he breaks down the tower in Penuel. Now, at this point, this is where a lot of people will say, this is overly violent, this is wrong, this, this, is, this is, should, have, should not have happened. Well, to us, this sounds really weird because we don't abide by these rules and these laws anymore, but these Israelites, they had actually become God's enemy by rejecting God. They rejected Gideon, and by doing so, they rejected God. And here's what Deuteronomy chapter 20 says. It says that if a city does not make peace with Israel's army, then they must be put to the sword. That's, that's, in, that's in the law. That's God's word. So he goes back and treats them as enemies, and he puts them to the sword. And so he's talking to the kings, and he's like, hey, you killed these men. We, we have not heard about this yet in, in this Gideon narrative. This is really interesting. He starts to interrogate the kings, and he says, hey, you killed these men. And then we figure out these men that, that they killed were actually Gideon's brothers. So there's like personal stuff going on here. He, he, they killed his brothers. And so he's captured these kings, and Gideon tells his son, he says, hey, take the sword and kill them. His son, he's like, yeah, you go and you kill them now. And again, people are like, whoa, okay, this is now wrong. He's crossed over. This is messed up. This is bad. But Numbers chapter 35 talks about this thing that's called the avenger of blood. The avenger of blood was someone who would put to death the murderer. See, the Bible, the language in the Bible is is very clear. It doesn't say that the avenger of blood is a murderer. He's actually putting to death the one who murdered. So this is justice being enacted. Gideon and and his son are the avenger of blood. And then the the son is afraid. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to kill these kings. And the kings start mocking Gideon's kid, which is a mistake. Because then Gideon decides, okay, now you're definitely dead. So he takes the sword and kills the kings. And at this point, this is when the oppression from Midian is done. The kings are dead. The army is defeated. They're all spread out. It's over. God has provided the victory, just like he said he would. But at this point, something really tragic happens. And just initially reading over it, you don't really see that it's tragic, but it is very tragic. The tragedy is that Israel says, Gideon, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our king, Gideon. We want you to rule over us. We, we want you to establish a dynasty. You and your son and your grandson. We want you and your family line to rule over us. Israel does not see that it is God's hand that saved them. They're thinking, it's all Gideon. He's amazing. His kid must be great. and His grandson will be great. You rule over us. They don't see it. That it's God. It's all because of God. They don't see that God called Gideon. God gave the signs of the fleece. God whittled the army down to 300. God threw Midian into confusion. God gave Gideon the ability to accomplish his will. So they attempt to make Gideon king. And by doing that, what they're saying is they're rejecting the kingship of God. Saying, Gideon, we want you. We don't want anyone else. We want Gideon to be 
our king. But Gideon refused. He says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord, Yahweh, will rule over you. That's a refusal, right? Does it seem like a refusal? To, yeah, it seems like it. Well, watch Gideon's actions after his refusal. He refuses it with his words, but this is what he does. He requested the gold from the spoils of the army. The spoil meaning all of the gold and the treasure that they plundered away from the Midianites. He requested all the gold. And he says, hey, bring me all of that gold. And they bring it to him, and it's 43 pounds of gold. I think that you would say that's treasure fit for a king. And then he made an ephod. An ephod is the outer garment of the high priest of Israel. He took that gold and made an ephod. And essentially what that does is, is it guides the high priest towards the will of God. And he puts this on some sort of image. Commentators say that it was probably a shrine of Baal. He takes what he made, he puts it on a shrine of an idol, of a false god. And it says that this became an idol to Israel and to Gideon's family. It became a snare to them. It led his family, it led Israel straight back down the path of idolatry. And then it says that he had 70 sons and many wives and a concubine. That's behavior of a king. You read the Bible enough, you understand that lots of kings had lots of wives and lots of kids. And, and here's, here's the kicker, I think, okay? He named his son Abimelech. Does anybody know what Abimelech means? It means my father, the king. The only major evidence there is to support that he outright did refuse this is the fact that the Bible says he went to live in his own house. I mean, usually the king would go to a palace or whatever, but he didn't do it. He went and lived in his own house. But all of these other things that he did throughout his life point to the fact that, yeah, maybe he refused it in word, but indeed he was acting and operating as the king of Israel. And of course, this is not legitimate. This is not, he's not the real king. God did not choose Gideon to be king. This is all bad. This is all wrong. This is all defiant against God and his will. He was not chosen by Yahweh to be the king. And then it says Gideon lived uh, to be a good old age, and then he died. Like I said, Gideon started back in chapter 6 by looking too closely at himself and seeing his weakness, and seeing these things. And then God showed him, and reassured him, and he had his trust in God, and he was relying on God, and he was at the high of the high, the highest point he could be. He had the victory, you want you to be our king, he was great, all these things, and it went to his head. I mean, just because he said, oh, I don't want to be king, it doesn't, you've been there before, you've said something, and then done the opposite, you know what I'm talking about. And that's what he did. So still at this point, Gideon is looking too much towards himself. He's saying, wow, I'm pretty great. I won the victory. They want me to be king. I'm going to rule over these people. I'm pretty awesome. Again, he's not looking at God and his power and his strength here. It's back here to himself. And he ends up becoming too confident in himself forgetting that the only reason he had victory in the first place was because God gave it to him. Gideon did rely on God at one point, but he took his attention off of God, and he started to be arrogant. He stopped relying on God. So here's point two. Never stop relying on God's strength. When you see your weakness as an opportunity and you begin to really rely on the strength of God, never stop that. The temptation 
will always be there. Like once you're feeling strong again, once you feel like, oh, this is good, I'm strong, the temptation is to just look back to yourself. Oh, I'm strong. I'm confident. I, I'm great. I have these great things. Look, just because you started to rely on God's strength doesn't mean that you are immune from making the mistake of looking to yourself again. You've got to be on guard against this. You have to be determined to never stop relying on the strength of God. And look, I'm sure you've seen this played out before. I'll use another example just from ministry. I think it's probably safe to say that a lot of men who feel called to be pastors, they, they start out, maybe hopefully most men who feel called to be pastors, they start out in a place of, I'm going to rely on God. Like an honorable place, an honorable attitude, an honorable mindset, doing their best to seek God's will in everything, doing their best to remain humble, depending on God and His Word, and then they start to see success. People start showing up for their churches. Lots of people are coming to their church. Lots of people are getting saved. Lots of people are getting baptized. Small groups are exploding. They have to start more ministries. It's a huge church. There's a thousand people at this church now. And that pastor says, whoa, look what I did here. Look what I built. This is pretty cool. Slowly, they start to shift their confidence from God onto themselves. And they become impressed with themselves and what they've built and what they've done. And they're telling people, look what I did. Look at, look at what I did. Look, look at this. Look at this church. This is amazing. And they'll say, you know, veiled things. Oh, by God's grace, look what I did. You see? Kind of like what Gideon did. Yahweh will be your king, but not really. And many times, this leads to the downfall of men like this in ministry. Their focus is not on God anymore. It's not about what he did. It's not about his strength, his power. They're thinking, I'm, I did this. I built this. They've stopped relying on God. They didn't continue relying on God's strength. They thought that they could handle it all on their own. Like I said before, again, this does not apply only to ministry. This is an example. You need to realize that this applies to everyone. No matter what you are doing, no matter what vacation you're in, no matter what you're studying, no matter what, you can become like Gideon. You can become like these pastors. You can get to the point to where you're like, oh, you know, at one point I was totally relying on God and it was great and then you tasted success and God was giving you victory over these things and then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I'm good. I'm great. I got this. I'm confident. And you're not relying on God and His power anymore. You should never stop relying on God's strength. As soon as your attitude starts to change, as soon as you start to see a shift in this mindset, you got to go, oh no, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous way to go. You need to remember it's all about God and His power and what He does through you. Not about you and your strength. So my question for you is this. Are you depending on God? Well, how can you tell? You can tell by how often you're in his word, for starters. How often are you spending uninterrupted time in God's word? How often are you praying? I'm talking like real intercessory prayer. How often are you, do you, you pull out the list of prayer requests and you pray for yourself and you pray over the people in your life and you ask God for things and you just pray and you pray over scripture and you meditate. Like, how often are you doing that? Are you arrogantly depending on yourself? Thinking that you have it all under control? If you are, then you need to repent. You need to rely on God for everything. 
You need to have a humble attitude. You need to recognize that everything you are is a gift from God. You're anything you're gifted at, anything that you are good at, anything, everything that you are is a gift from God. Your strengths are from God. You need to be relying on his strength all the time. I want you to remember this. You are most useful to God when you are the most dependent upon him. Let's pray. God, thank you for what we can learn from the life of Gideon. God, please help us to understand that our weakness is an opportunity for us to rely on you and your strength. Let us not be discouraged by our weakness. Let us not be caught off guard by our weakness. But let us understand that you, at times you make us weak. You bring us to our knees because you're showing us that we need to be depending upon you for everything. So help us to understand this. Help us to rely on you. Help us to never stop relying on you. Help us to never become arrogant. To always have a humble attitude, understanding that the reason why we have anything is because you have graciously given it to us in your kindness. So help us to know these things, to understand these things, and be with us as we go to discuss these things in our small groups. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.